Well, good morning, church. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll be studying verses 1 through 12 this morning. Before I read this passage, I want to ask God for illumination. If you would, once you find your place, if you'll bow your head with me. Father, our prayer is exactly what we just sang. We need to hear you. We need to see you. And we need to magnify Jesus Christ. And so we pray right now that we will hear you and that we will see you and that in doing that we will magnify your beloved Son and our great Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. So let's read verses 1 through 12. Jesus has been teaching. They, uh, the disciples have been arguing who is the greatest. They've been having some difficulty understanding that Jesus has to go to the cross and that He has to be killed and that He'll be th- raised on the third day. They, uh, Jesus has been doing a lot of healing and all of this and now they're traveling. And this marks... What we're about to read marks a shift in the direction that the disciples are going uh, geographically. They're actually beginning to move their way south toward Jerusalem, which means they're physically moving to the place where Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be ridiculed and mocked and killed and ultimately raised from the dead. And so we're at a crucial moment here, but Mark includes this this seminal teaching on marriage and divorce that Jesus has in verses 1 through 12. The title of the message is Marriage, Divorce, and Worship. Marriage, Divorce, and Worship. And so let's read verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom... He taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I want to lay all my cards out on the table at the very beginning of this message. I want to tell you that I come from a family that celebrates and promotes marriage. 
My mother's mom and dad were married for 25 years when my grandfather had a stroke and died. And my grandmother went on to live the next 40 years um, not marrying, but rather reveling in and honoring uh, the man that she had married. My dad's mom and uh, dad were married for over 60 years until my grandfather died around the age of 90 and then my grandmother a few years later. My mom and dad have been married for 41 years. Their siblings have been married for 45 years, 43 years, 42 years, respectively. I visited with Jamie's grandparents last week. They've been married 65 years. And her mom and dad were married for 30 years before her mom died of cancer. So I I come from a family that celebrates and promotes the marriage covenant. And I got to see that in my life, Thanksgiving, Christmas, spring breaks, summers. And I just want to tell you, I don't apologize for that. I actually revel in it. I thank God for it, and I'm humbled by it. I've had many friends and even counselees over the years who have told me um, that I just don't understand. They're pursuing divorce. They want to get a divorce. I'm trying to talk them out of it. And they say, Ryan, you just don't understand. You don't understand uh, my predicament. You don't understand my spouse. You don't understand how hard it is, how difficult it is, how terrible it is, how oppressive it is. Because you have a good marriage. And you have a church with people who have good marriages. And you, you have a family of good marriages. You couldn't possibly understand. And y'all, I just want to tell you today, and I'm just speaking personally at this point, that I am insulted by that. And I'm also disappointed. Because what it, it indicates from the people who are seeking divorce, it indicates that they don't understand that not only is marriage something to be celebrated, something to be enjoyed, and something to be promoted, but it's something that's fought for. Marriage is something that is fought for. Because you see in all the the, the relationships that I've been able to see and witness over the years, I've seen husbands and wives endure conflict and anger and betrayal and heartache and pain and all kinds of difficulties, trauma. But husband and wife fought for marriage. And so... When I hear someone say, you don't have any idea, I can say, I may not know exactly what you're going through, but please don't insult me or other people who are fighting for marriage even in the midst of a difficult scenario. And so this is what I want to say. First of all, I know a lot about a lot of marriages. And every marriage that's worth its salt, every marriage that glorifies God, I know has endured major problems. The difference, the distinction about good marriages, God-glorifying marriages, is that a man and a woman are committed to the marriage covenant. They are committed to the covenant that has been cut between the two. And so I want to make a clear statement about marriage and divorce right now. The first thing I want to say is that marriage is glorious 
It is beautiful, and it is extremely difficult. It is glorious, it is beautiful, it is extremely difficult. It is glorious because God designed it for man and woman. It is beautiful because it represents the beautiful and wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is extremely difficult because when two people get married, you know who's getting married? Two sinners. And do you know what sinners do? They sin a lot against God and each other. And so it's difficult. Now, on the flip side, if, if marriage is, is glorious and beautiful and extremely difficult, divorce is traumatic, it's ugly, and it's potentially destructive. I say that it's traumatic because God has made two into one flesh so that when that one flesh no longer wants to be one, there is a ripping, there is a tearing away that happens. I don't know if you've ever had a fingernail or a toenail rip off of your skin. But if you could just imagine taking a pair of pliers and holding on to your fingernail and ripping it off of your finger, that would be traumatic, right? Well, that's what happens in a divorce, spiritually and physically and so forth. So it's traumatic. It's also ugly. Why is it ugly? Because it defiles the picture of marriage being a representation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see this picture of this husband, Christ, who loves his bride sacrificially, selflessly, um, eternally and infinitely. And then when divorce happens, all of that picture just goes away. And then it's potentially destructive. And I say potentially, I'm going to get into some details later, but it's potentially destructive because so often when divorce happens, there is unrepentance. And when there's unrepentance, there's a lack of forgiveness. And when there's a lack of forgiveness, there's a lack of restoration to God and to other people so that people who experience divorce live outside of the presence of God, outside of the, the grace of God because of there's a lack of restoration. And then they isolate themselves from the people of God so that tra the trajectory of the rest of their life goes down rather than up. And so... What I'm about to say is very important. If you're a note taker, I want you to write it down, okay? I want to say this. If you're humble and repentant before God, if you're humble and repentant before God, there is hope for every marriage. If you're humble and repentant before God, there is hope for every marriage. And there is grace for everyone who experiences the trauma of divorce. There is grace for everyone who experiences the trauma of divorce if you're humble and repentant. So I want to preach Jesus' message here by giving you five observations, one interpretation, and a few applications. Let's start by looking at the five observations from the text. All right? The first observation is this. The Pharisees ask a bad question. The Pharisees ask a bad question. They come up to Jesus in order to test Him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Their question is a bad one, first of all, because it's malicious. They don't ask him about divorce because they want to know his teaching on divorce. They ask him about divorce in order to tempt him, in order to trap him, in order to lead him to a place that's ultimately going to cause his death. You see, they have now, that is, Jesus and the disciples, have entered an area that Herod Antipas is over. He has jurisdiction. All right, Herod Antipas is married to Herodias, and they are the ones who are responsible for murdering who? John the Baptist. And why was John the Baptist murdered? Because he spoke out about what? Yes, the divorce and then the remarriage that they that those two enjoyed. You see, Herodias had been married to Philip, which was Herod's brother. And then she goes and marries Herod Antipas, and she sends a certificate of divorce back to Rome where Philip was and say, I'm now married to Herod. And, and so what John the Baptist is, says that's wrong, that is sinful, What you, you need to repent and trust in God. And so what happens is they end up mul- uh, murdering John the Baptist, and that's what the Pharisees want to happen to Jesus now. So it's a bad question because it's malicious. It's also a bad question because it's disingenuous. All right, it's not humble. It's not earnest. They're not coming to Jesus and saying, okay, we're all in marriages here and we want to know how you can teach us to be great husbands. No, it's disingenuous, okay? And, and it's bad also because it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Instead of asking Jesus the question about God's desire for the marriage covenant, Instead of saying, how can we glorify God in our marriages? How can we deal with the difficult issues of of anger and betrayal and adultery and conflict? How can we do this, Jesus? No. They simply said, is it good, is it holy for a man to divorce his wife? And so, I just want us to recognize that we often ask the wrong questions in our own lives, in our own marriages, and when we're also seeking divorce, we, we ask wrong questions. You know, Let me give you a couple of illustrations. When a young couple is dating and they they have questions about physical affection, a lot of times you hear them ask the question, how far can we go? You ever heard that question before? How far can we go? That's the wrong question. The question should be, how can we glorify God in our relationship? How can we seek the purity of God as we pursue one another in this relationship? When a student is going through uh, a semester and it's down to the last few exams, they ask the question, how low of a grade can I make on this exam and still have a B in the class? That's the wrong question. The question should be, how hard can I study and how much time can I invest in this material so that I might possibly can make an A in the class? And when a married man or woman who is struggling in the marriage asks the question, what loophole is there possibly in my relationship that I can have a qualifiable divorce? That's not the right question. The right question is, how can I glorify God in this relationship? How can I pursue the honor and the prestige of Jesus Christ as the great husband of His bride, the church, in this relationship? So the Pharisees ask a bad question. We need to ask right questions ourselves. The second observation is that the Pharisees interpret the Bible selectively and inaccurately. They interpret the Bible selectively and inaccurately. Look at verse 3 and 4. Jesus answered that question, well, what does Moses command you? 
And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. And so they interpret the Bible selectively. All right, so what Jesus is asking them is, what does the Lord command to marry couples through the writings of Moses? That's what Jesus is asking. What does Jesus command of married couples through the writing of Moses? And these Pharisees don't say anything about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6, all passages that deal with marriage and the family, and they go to the one exception clause in Deuteronomy 24. They interpret the Scripture selectively because they want what they want. All right? They then interpret the Bible inaccurately. And I think that we may have verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 up on the screen because in Deuteronomy 24, the Lord does address divorce. And I want to read to you that passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right, so so the Pharisees interpret that scripture inaccurately. All right, they answer Jesus' question by saying, a man may write a woman a certificate of divorce and send her away, and they conveniently forget to mention the whole aspect about her being defiled about her being unclean. The word that that is used in Deuteronomy 24 actually literally means nakedness. It means sexual immorality, adultery of some sort. And the Lord knew that there were going to be men who treated their wives badly and women who treated their husbands badly. And He knew that sin was going to happen and so He gives this provision of when sin does happen. But the Pharisees don't say anything about this specific issue. They just gloss right over this whole thing about adultery and and sexual immorality, and they just say, hey, he can write a divorce for anything, and that's what Moses said. And you know what happened in first century Judaism? Men were writing certificates of divorce because women were burning their toast. Men were writing certificates of divorce because they just got tired of their wives and they found someone else that they thought looked better or could serve a better meal for them. That was commonplace in first century Judaism. And they interpreted Deuteronomy 24 so selectively and inaccurately that they allowed for that. But they did not see that Deuteronomy 24 says there is an abomination to the Lord. The Lord hates it. He loathes it. Especially that stipulation that He gave. And so this is what I want to say before we go to observation number three. I want to say to you, don't ever misuse the Bible in order to get what you want. Don't ever misuse the Bible in order to get what you want. Go to the Scriptures with a humble attitude and ask the Lord to give you spiritual eyes to see His will 
and a humble heart to want His will and a a resolved determination to walk in His will no matter what. I know this. God never calls one of His children to do something that He does not equip them to do. He doesn't. So if He calls you to stay married and to walk in humility, then stay married and walk in humility because the Spirit of God will give you everything that you need. If He calls you to get counsel on what to do because you're in a very difficult situation, then get counsel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, if the counsel is godly and biblical, walk in that path. The Pharisees interpret the Bible selectively and accurately. Let's do not do the same. The third observation is that Jesus interprets the divorce Scripture authoritatively. He interprets the divorce scripture authoritatively. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So in other words, Jesus is saying, listen, Moses did not say divorce is a great idea. When when a man gets tired of his wife or angry with her or he finds another woman who he thinks is better looking, then he should just simply write a certificate of divorce. No. That's not what Moses said. Moses never commanded divorce. He never instructed it. He never said, oh yes, you've got my seal of approval. Go out and do that as much and as often as you think is going to make you happy. No. Jesus is saying Moses never initiated, never instructed anyone to initiate a divorce. But the fact is this, the Lord knew that men and women were going to sin against each other. The Lord knew that they were going to abandon each other and commit adultery against one another. The Lord knew that there was going to be sin. Why? Because the Lord knows what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. God knew that. And in knowing that, He makes a provision to have an organized, lawful society. I want to make a a couple of statements here that I make sure that I get right. So if you would, bear with me as I read what I wrote. Moses is not making an allowance to sin. He is giving an instruction to them for when they do sin. The fact that God gives laws for divorce does not mean that God authorizes divorce. It means that He has a redemptive plan for people who do experience divorce. His law is a common grace to restrain even more sin from happening. And so, I would just say it this way. If God did not create this stipulation and this allowance, this principle would be true. When um, When there is no law, lawlessness reigns. When there is no law, lawlessness reigns. We've talked at Build recently. I was telling them about um, an article that I read in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And if for those of you who remember that, the city was in complete upheaval. You remember that? And, and essentially the whole downtown area of New Orleans was underwater. I mean, it was at least waist deep. And, and there became no law enforcement agency to be able to enforce any laws. And so looters were going downtown, not only with canoes, but with empty 
uh, trash cans. And they were knocking out the windows of pharmacies and clothing stores and grocery stores and all other kinds of stores. And they were just grabbing everything that they wanted. And this one guy was walking out of this store with six pairs of jeans over his shoulders. And the person who was writing the article asked, is this your store? You're trying to salvage your stuff? And this is what the man said. This store is everybody's now. This store is everybody's. So they were treating it as of their own. And then I read that article. I read, this is the reality. When there is no law, lawlessness reigns. And I want to tell you, that's actually where we're headed in our country today regarding the issue of marriage, regarding the issue of family. And it is God's grace to us that He provides laws and He provides stipulations regarding the marriage covenant and even divorce. And so this is what I want to tell you before we go to the observation number four. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. Don't don't make your decision about marriage, divorce, and remarriage according to the way that you feel. Understand that God's regulations are good and that His will is perfect. The book of Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You are not wiser than God. None of you are. So don't make your own decisions based on how you feel. Take this book. Allow others who know it well to walk you through the covenant of marriage and the stipulations regarding divorce. Jesus interprets the divorce scripture authoritatively. The fourth observation is that Jesus teaches a God-exalting vision of marriage. Jesus teaches a God-exalting vision of marriage. Of marriage. Verse 6 But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Does anybody know what passage Jesus is quoting here? Genesis 1. Actually, that's right. He's, he's, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 talk about creation. All right, it's kind of. Uh, Stories back to back. Here, Genesis 1, God made them male and female, and essentially Jesus is rooting the marriage covenant in creation, the creative order, all right? And Jesus is saying that God made you and He owns you. That's important. God made you and He owns you. You are not your own. Your life is not your own. Your marriage is not your own. You belong to God, and because of that, listen, you owe Him. You owe God. You owe Him worship. You owe Him faithfulness. You owe Him loyalty. You owe Him loyalty to the marriage covenant because you are not your own. Marriage is rooted in the reality that God made man and woman for His purposes, not their own. The second thing that Jesus essentially says is that God authored and established the covenant of marriage. God authored and established the covenant of marriage. Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, this is the most defining statement about marriage in all of the Bible. It's quoted four times in Scripture. It's quoted in Genesis It's quoted in Matthew, it's quoted in Mark, and it's quoted in Ephesians. 
This is the defining statement about what marriage is. And Jesus is saying that God both created it, He designed it, and He fashioned it for exactly what it is intended to be. And in the statement, y'all, I for years now have, have understood this passage about marriage to be saying three things about what it is. All right? It's leaving, it's cleaving, and it's weaving. Just an easy kind of rhyming way to understand what marriage is. It's leaving, cleaving, and weaving. First of all, it's leaving. What is marriage? It is leaving all of your former priorities and all of your fixed attachments. And specifically, Genesis 2 says, it's leaving your father and your mother. It's making a separation from that which was formerly most important so that you can go to what now is most important in your life, namely your husband or your wife. It's leaving. All right? And I think it would be right and appropriate for me to say, whether you're married or single here today, You need to leave your parents. You you need to leave their governance. You you need to leave uh, being totally attached to them. And if you are seeking marriage or you're married now, there there needs to be a clear demarcation that you have left them and you are attached to your spouse. The second thing is cleaving. He says, hold fast. This word means to stick together. It means to stay close to. It's the same word that is used of Ruth in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14. You remember when, when uh, the ladies are around Naomi and Naomi is basically saying, y'all need to go back to your homeland. Maybe you can find a husband or whatever. And the text says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stuck to her. Ruth stuck to her, clung to her, because Ruth said, wherever you go, I'm going. Whoever you worship, I'm worshiping. Wherever you live, I'm going to live. Whatever you need, I'm going to be there for you. There is a sticking. That's the same exact verb that is used here. And what uh, the, the marriage covenant is saying, there is a stickingness, a cleaving that must happen. And so this is what it means. When you cleave to your spouse, it means that you pursue your spouse. You pursue him or her. Your great ambition is to be with him or to be with her. You pursue him in love or you pursue her in love and in grace and in relationship. You constantly are pursuing this person that God has put you in covenant with. It means you're loyal to each other. I mean, you love each other and are faithful to each other. You abandon other allegiances in order to make it clear not only to your spouse, but to your extended family and to the rest of the world that you are faithful to this one. It means you're loyal and it means that you love each other at all times, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, you are going to cleave to your spouse because that is the nature of this covenant. And it depicts the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the third aspect of this marriage covenant is weaving. Weaving. Now, use the word weave because in weaving, you're interlacing two materials on top of one another such that the two become one. They become one new unit. All right? And so... They are supremely intimate with one another. And so when the marriage covenant says that you shall become one flesh, it's talking about intimacy. It's saying that you you need to be intimate in every way. You need to be intimate spiritually. 
Listen, Deuteronomy 6 talks about marriage and the family, and it says this. It says, men, grandparents, you need to teach your the scriptures to your wife and to your kids and to your grandkids when you wake up, when you lie down, when you sit around in the living room, when you walk on the way, talk about the things of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the greatness of the Lord and incorporate into your marriage the things of God. And y'all, I want to tell you, you will never arrive at the true one flesh union and the intimacy that God intends you to enjoy in this life if you shut God out of your relationship. It's not going to happen. So invite Him. Talk about Him. Teach of the things of Him in your marriage. It means you're intimate mentally. Mentally. And I, I just say this. So many of us are so engaged with thinking and working and speaking throughout the day with people that aren't our spouse. Some of us are teachers, and so we teach people all day long. Some of us work side by side on a team of people with projects, and we're constantly having to think such that at the end of the day, we're ready to go home, or we're ready just to shut the door and not think and not talk and just kind of murmur around until we go to bed and do the same thing the next day. We've got to fight against that if you're married if you're married. Because if we want to be the one flesh union that God wants us to be mentally, we have to know each other's hopes, desires, plans, longings. And we have to communicate with one another well if we're going to fulfill this one flesh union. It also means that we have to be intimate emotionally. All right, The Scripture says that we should weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. I can think of no greater relationship to do that than in the marriage union. Rejoice with each other, weep with each other, enter into each other's sorrows and each other's celebrations because that's the nature of what it means to be intimate and to be one with one another. And of course it means that you're intimate with each other physically, that you pursue one another's physical good, that you love each other and you sacrifice for each other in order to serve one another. And so Jesus teaches that God authored and established the covenant of marriage, and he gives a picture of what that is. It's leaving, it's cleaving, it's weaving, it's enjoying the glory of God in the marriage covenant. And so then, and then Jesus essentially says, God sovereignly and permanently establishes marriage. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You know, it doesn't matter whether you did everything right or everything wrong when you got married. It doesn't matter whether you and your spouse opened the Bible and went directly by the book when you got married or whether you never opened the Bible and you did everything wrong before you got married. You know what happened when you got married? God joined you together. God did it. God did it. You didn't do it. So the covenant that has been made, God sovereignly did it. I can't explain it. I don't know what else to say about it other than the fact that God is sovereign in it. And so in God's sovereignty, what He intended to be permanent, allow it to be permanent. So, before we move on to this final observation, I want to define marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. 
ordained by the Creator and Savior of the world. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman ordained by the Creator and Savior of the world. And that is a God-exalting vision of marriage. And Jesus gives it to us. So the fifth and final observation is that Jesus makes a sober and definitive declaration about divorce. Jesus makes a sober and definitive declaration about divorce. Look at verse 10 and following. So Jesus never actually addresses divorce and its stipulations with the Pharisees who asked him. He trumps and triumphs marriage. And now when they get into the house, and it's more of an intimate setting, the disciples ask him about it. And in the house, he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now this was news to the disciples. As I've already stated, it was commonplace for men to write certificates of divorce to their wives and just to get other wives. This was common in Judaism. And Jesus stops them in their tracks and says, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery against her. Jesus ups the ante from everything that they had known and everything that they had thought about divorce. And then look at what he says. He says, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, this is news on two fronts. All right? First of all, it's news because of this new standard that seems to be uh, getting set regarding adultery um, if a remarriage occurs. But it's also news because women didn't divorce men in this culture. Men divorced women, right? So Jews didn't really know anything about the fact that a woman would have the right and the dignity and the authority to somehow establish a divorce. The Roman Empire, though, actually had been celebrated, had been, um, engaged in women initiating divorce for about 70 years by this point. And that's really kind of what happened with Herodias and, and her husband Philip. And then she uh, marries uh, Herod himself. And so Jesus is also following in the footsteps of John the Baptist who is declaring what Herodias did as sin. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say that this is not everything that Jesus says about the issue of divorce. All right? It is right here in this passage, and we want to feel the impact of that. But in Matthew, Jesus gives an allowance for divorce because of sexual immorality. If you read in Matthew 19, you'll see that. That if there is sexual immorality, there is that stipulation. And then if you read on into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians actually says that if a believing spouse is married to an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married then by all means the believer is bound to stay with the unbeliever but if the unbeliever insists on departing then the believer is is uh, commanded to let him or her depart okay those are stipulations that the scripture gives and there are other principles that the New Testament gives us about marriage and divorce that helps us understand every unique circumstance. I've done quite a bit of counseling regarding marriage, and it's like every circumstance is unique. But what I love about the Scripture 
is that it is inspired by God. It is useful for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every single good work and every marriage can as well. All right. And I want to make this one more statement. All divorce is a result of sin. All divorce is. But not every divorce is sinful. And I want, to, I, want to declare, I want to tell you what I mean by that. If an unbelieving wife looks at her believing husband and says, I'm not a believer, I don't love you, I don't want to be with somebody who worships this God and revels in this gospel, I'm leaving. And I'll be sending you divorce paperwork. And then they send it, And this person gets counsel and prays and labors. And finally, after a while, the divorce paperwork gets sent and there's nothing else to do but to let them depart. And that believer over here writes their name on the the divorce paperwork as if authenticating the divorce to go through. What I'm saying is that person is not necessarily sinning. We understand that? So, So... all divorce is a result of sin, but not every single circumstance are, are the people actually sinning. It depends on the circumstances. And so Jesus makes a definitive declaration about divorce. All right. So let's look at the one interpretation. And uh, for you note takers, I would really like you to write this whole statement down because this is what I believe God wants us to take away from this passage. As the children of God and the bride of Christ, we need to stop entertaining ideas, plans, and loopholes for divorce. Just stop it. Stop entertaining it. Stop thinking about it. Stop planning for it. Stop threatening it. Stop it. And start. And start. Training our single people for what it means to be married. Start discipling our married people in the difficulties of marriage. And start giving the grace and the hope of divorced people for forgiveness and restoration and fidelity to Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do as a church, as individuals, as elders, as deacons, as Bible study leaders, as children's leaders. We need to elevate marriage, give a picture of the glory and greatness and difficulty of marriage, and train all of our people in it. That's what Mark wants us to take away from this. Okay, four applications. Four applications. Number one, and I don't have anything up on the screen for you on this, is that if you're single and you've never been married, prepare yourself for the covenant of marriage. If you're single and never been married, prepare yourself for the covenant of marriage. And so how do you do that? Read the Bible, uh, especially about where it talks about marriage. Read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6, 
read uh, the picture of marriage that you see throughout Scripture. Read Ephesians 5 and about how Jesus is the model uh, husband for His bride. Read the Scriptures. Second of all, read good books on marriage. And there are a lot of really good books out there. I know that for, uh, for men, the best book that I've ever read is The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. The Exemplary Husband. For women, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. Tim Keller's written a great book called The Meaning of Marriage. Wonderful book on marriage. Read books on marriage, even before you even find someone you think you might be interested in, in marrying. Spend time with married couples. So often I just see, you know, 16 to 30-year-olds hanging out with, with single 16 to 30-year-olds, and they're talking about marriage, and they're talking about relationships, and just pardon my bluntness, but it's a pooling of ignorance, right? There's no experience there. And so hang out with married people who know what the covenant is. Take mental notes on good spouses and bad spouses. Say, you know what? I want to be that way. I definitely don't want to be that way. Keep yourself a notebook and write things down as you learn about what you see and what you read. Pray for your, your future spouse and pray for yourself. Pray, 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 because you understand that marriage is glorious, it is beautiful, but it is extremely difficult, and you will need the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill all of God's commandments for you in it. And then the final one under singleness and never been married, I want to say, be faithful in all your responsibilities. So, like, let's just say you have the responsibility of teaching Sunday school from August through December, then teach Sunday school from August through December. If you have a class, you're at university, and you, 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 you took on 15 hours, then take on 15 hours and see it all the way through. If you have a project at work, then see that project all the way through. What are you doing? You're cultivating faithfulness. You're cultivating loyalty. You're cultivating something that says, I'm going to see this thing through. So that when you enter into marriage, it's not easy for you to just tuck tail and run at the first sign of difficulty. So cultivate faithfulness in your responsibilities. Don't be a quitter. Second application is that if you're single and divorced, understand what your responsibilities to God are and respond accordingly. Understand what your responsibilities to God are and respond accordingly. That is, respond biblically. So I think the first question that you've got to ask is, was my divorce acceptable according to God's regulations? Was it acceptable? Does it fit into the stipulations that His Scripture actually gives? And if so, you have to ask the question, do I desire to live the rest of my life as a single person honoring the Lord and living for Him, or do I have a desire to get married? And if I have a desire to get married, I need to prepare myself for that marriage if my divorce was acceptable before God. Now, if your divorce was not acceptable before God, you need to decide what your steps are. What do I need to do? Well, this is what you need to do. First of all, you need to see what your sin is and what your sin was. You need to fall before the Lord and you need to confess your sin you need to grieve over your sin and repent and ask God for grace. 
Say, God, I need your grace. I don't know what to do. I, I, don't, I understand that what I did was wrong. Please help me. Please help me to walk in faithfulness and obedience to you. I know that you love sinners. I know that you died for sinners like me, and I have made a mistake. I've sinned. What do you want me to do now? That's the heartbeat of somebody who has gone down the wrong road in this area. Seek the counsel of godly men and women. Pray for grace. Rest in God's love. Because I know that no sin is greater than God's grace. The third application is if you're married, grow in your commitment to the marriage covenant. Grow in your commitment to the marriage covenant. Um, first of all, under this, I would say, and you might not can write all this down, but embrace the God-exalting vision of marriage that Jesus lays out in Mark 10. Embrace it. In other words, God made you and He owns you. That's the first thing that you married people need to understand. I belong to God. I'm under His authority. I'm not independent. I'm not autonomous. I can't, I'm not the captain of my own ship. I belong to Him and I march at, his, at the beat of His drum. Second thing is embrace that God authored and instituted the covenant of marriage in leaving, cleaving, and weaving. And so I want, I want you to ask yourself the question, have I left my parents? Have I made a clean break from my parents to my spouse? And if you haven't, do that. If you have, praise God for it. Cleaving. Have I stuck to my spouse? And do I stick by my spouse through thick and thin, through through hardship and ease, through rejoicing and mourning, through victory and through failure, am I sticking to my spouse? Am I cleaving to him? Am I cleaving to her? I want to work at that. I want to, be, I want to work at being faithful and loyal and loving no matter what they're being like in this moment. And then, weaving? Am I intimate with my spouse? Do I engage in conversation with them? Am I emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically pursuing intimacy with my spouse in the way that honors Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, where I understand that my covenant and my obligation is to pursue intimacy with my spouse. Am I doing that? And if I'm not, can I get help to do it? Can I work on it? Can I take small steps that will help me cleave and weave with my spouse? And I just want to say this, married people. Take divorce off the table. Take it off the table. I, I, I will tell you, I, I, I have, I've talked with friends and I've counseled with people who seem to threaten divorce every three or four months. Or threaten to leave. Or threaten to get their stuff. Or get their stuff and leave. And I think that the impetus of Scripture would say, stop that nonsense. Just stop it. You're here. You're here. You're here. You're here. Stay here. Make improvements in your love for your spouse. Uh, meditate on where you're failing and change your ways by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for your spouse. Pray for yourself every day, multiple times a day. And as I told the single people, read good books on marriage, follow the instructions that those good books give, seek counsel and follow it, 
and kill pride and pursue humility and you will fulfill the covenant of marriage. <clears throat> Finally, fourthly, if you're breathing, if you're breathing, understand and celebrate the purpose of marriage. Understand and celebrate the ultimate purpose of marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking about marriage. And he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, This mystery is great, but I am talking about Jesus Christ and the church. Jesus leaves eternity in heaven where there is perfect unity and fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as a bridegroom, He comes down and lives sacrificially for His bride. He lays His life down on the cross. He substitutes Himself on her behalf. He takes on all of the abuse, all of the blasphemy, all of the ridicule, all of the pain, all of the excruciating experience of hell itself on behalf of His bride. He is buried. And on third day, He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And one day He's going to return and there's going to be the ultimate union between Jesus Christ, the great and ultimate husband, and His bride, the church of Jesus Christ. And they are going to be united and they're going to enjoy uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb and there's going to be that final and consummate union between Christ the Savior and His bride, the church. And it will be glorious and wonderful and beautiful and there will be nothing difficult about it. And let me tell you, if you're married, your marriage is intended to picture that here on earth. And so let's embrace the vision of marriage for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? As long as I'm a pastor at Redeemer Church, I do not want there to ever be a class system of Christians in this church where there are first-class and second-class citizens based on our past or our present or our difficulties that we've experienced. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But I also want to say that I do not want our church to be a church that negates or ignores what Christ has said. And so what we need among married people and single people and divorced people and remarried people is a humility before God and before each other and a desire to be repentant any time that we sin so that we can see the gospel of Jesus Christ and revel in His forgiving grace. Okay? Alright, the second thing that I want to say is that when football teams um, try to run up the middle, and they get stuffed a couple of times, they decide they're going to try something else. And so a lot of times they'll run wide. And if that gets stuffed, then they'll decide to throw the ball in the air. They're trying to find something that will work to be successful. And for the last year and a half, we have tried to find some way to be successful in inviting your response to the message that is preached. And we've been unsuccessful at every turn. 
Okay? And so we're going to try something new today, and we're going to ask Ron Marino, our newest elder, to go back to my office, pastoral office, and he's going to stay there for about 10 or 15 minutes. And if you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you need help, then just step back there and be able to talk with and pray with an elder so that you might could, could receive help. Okay? Because this is what I'm confident of. There isn't a marriage or an individual in here that doesn't need help. And so for us not to seek it, I believe is in some way prideful. And so let's don't be prideful, okay? Let's seek help if we need it. And then I want to say that there has been a lot of hard work that's been done on the the new uh, training center. We're calling this the worship center, and we're going to call the modular in the back the training center. And so I want to um, ask Mark, if you or Jeremy will open it up for us today so that we can go in and see it. And we're going to have a work day on these grounds next Saturday. And so we're going to do a few things in here. We've got some things to do up at the barn and then in the training center. And so I would like for you to approach Mark or Wayne today if you're willing to come for about... If you've got two hours to give, come. If you've got three hours to give, come. If you've got four hours to give, come because we can put you to work to make our, our place a better place for worship and training in the gospel. Okay? God, I pray for our church that we would be a place that goes in the power and in the grace of the gospel, and that marriage, married people and single people and people who have experienced trauma in their lives can run to the cross and find everything that we need, not only for life and godliness, but for joy, for happiness, for celebration, because of the great Husband, Jesus Christ. In His name, Amen.